If you love discovering new music, you'll love Tiny Desk Contest Top Shelf. It's a new live stream series from NPR Music. Join us every week as we search for the next great undiscovered artist to play behind the tiny desk. You can learn more at nprpresents.org. What's up, everybody? Peace. Uh, Just heads up. There may be some strong language in this episode. Ooh, (laughs) some bad words. I identified in a funny way with Spider-Man because he was he had brown hair like me, so I thought he was Puerto Rican. Everybody that had brown hair when I was growing up, I thought was Puerto Rican. <laughs> you know. Yo yo yo, mi gente, Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> Qué bueno. Y me llamo Bobito García, a.k.a. Cool Bob Love, a.k.a. Tito Frío Amor. <laughs> Welcome. You wasn't ready for that. Right? Welcome to what's good. Tito, was... Tito Frío Amor. Hey, 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 come on. You don't talk yet. This is Silence NPR. Is mic, please. This is NPR. You're, you're, you're stepping over boundaries here. Today we are talking with a friend, a homeboy, a seriously talented graphic novelist, Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. Boricua from New York, or for, if you don't know what that means, Puerto Rican from New York, wrote for Marvel and DC before creating the popular graphic novel series called La Borinqueña. Yeah, La Borinqueña is a fierce, environmentally conscious superhero who uses her superpowers to help her people, which is actually a lot like Edgardo. He put together a comics anthology called Reconstruction. 100% of the proceeds go to rebuilding Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricanes Irma and Maria, which devastated the island last year. He blends art and activism in a really cool way, and he's here with us today. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Sony Music Latin, presenting Grammy Award-winning artist Ile, a Puerto Rican singer and composer known for her work with Calle 13. Her debut album, Elevitable, garnered her a Best New Artist nomination at the Latin Grammys. It also won the award for the Best Latin Rock, Urban, or Alternative Album at the 60th Annual Grammy Awards. Her new single and video, titled Odio, is available everywhere now. Some things were meant for each other. Fries and milkshakes, selfies and duck face. And now, what's good with Stretch and Bobito and Spotify? Yes, the same app that has millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. To subscribe to ours, search for What's Good with Stretch and Bobito, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. And now and now and we are back joined in the studio with graphic novelist edgardo miranda rodriguez welcome to what's good my man that's you (laughs) you need a script here Take two, edgardo welcome to the show line line michelle michelle line What's up? What's up? Everything is very well. I'm very happy to be here with family. Uh, it's a very surreal moment. Uh, growing up with you guys, I've known Bob for like 29 years when I was a freshman at Colgate. But it's something beautiful to actually be able to share this, uh, share the work I'm doing with actual actual family and such with history. Hey, God, I, I mean, you know, we knew, we know you dearly, uh, but for our audience, 
How would you self-describe who Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez is in 2018? I look at myself as a combination of many things. First and foremost, I see myself as a father and a husband. I'm raising two boys in um, Brooklyn with my wife. Uh, my oldest son, Kian, is uh has um, autism and has never held him back. And mm. I've learned to become an advocate and an activist for his life based on my experience as a younger activist. I think the 20 plus years of living in New York City as a culture warrior has taught me to be where I am in my career now. I've been working for myself for close to 20 years, running my own design studio, Somos Arte. But prior to that, I was an activist working with El Puente, the National Congress of Puerto Rican Rights, being mentored by Iris Morales, the late Richie Perez, many activists who are known for their work, particularly in the Puerto Rican community around um, police brutality, around um, fair housing. And it's, it's, it's kind of like a long title to fit on a business card, you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, I just see myself as, uh, as, a, as an activist that really is in engaging a larger audience through the arts. Ed, you, you just referred to yourself as a cultural warrior, but you've also been described as an artivist. That's I've a never, weird word. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard that before. I've heard that. I, and yeah. I've heard many people call me an artivist and such. Uh-huh. I like to actually use terminology that kind of like can appeal to a larger audience because oftentimes artifice is, is such a very niche kind of like adjective. Um, but I definitely consider myself one that actually does bring in the arts with my advocacy because I see it as a as a real tool to, to engage. And it's what really woke up my, my consciousness when I was a high school student. It was actually like Lil Stevie from the E Street Band when he pulled together the Sun City uh, initiative, which was everyone from Ruben Blades to Run DMC to Curtis Blow, Africa, Mabada, U2, and they created a whole movement to boycott South Africa. And we should say Sun City refers to the resort in apartheid South Africa that came to represent apartheid. And that went from like music to young people boycotting Nike to boycotting all these companies that, that, was, that were not divesting in South Africa. So that kind of like sparked my consciousness. And in college, Ruben Blades, listening to his music, Buscando America, that kind of like tied it in and balanced me as a Latin growing up in uh, New York City. Estoy buscando America. So that was kind of like the foundation that made it easy for me to say, I think this is a perfect opportunity for me to do my part and do it in the way that I can, because I'm a nerd, I've always read and collected comics. And, but, I, but to a point, I think uh, we're looking at comic books now as kind of like critical mass. It's everywhere. And it literally is synonymous with uh, corporate branding. But I really thought that this would be an excellent opportunity to use it as social justice activation as opposed to just, as opposed to only um, corporate branding. You were a mentee of Luis Garden Acosta. Yes. Uh, a former young lord who founded El Puente High School in Williamsburg at a time when that community had the highest murder rate and the highest high school dropout rate in all of the the five boroughs of New York City. You created the very first curriculum 
in the world, to my knowledge, I remember the Source magazine writing about it, yeah, that, was that incorporated hip-hop. So you've been pulling and using popular culture, knowing what, what would attract the youth. What sparked that back then, you know, beyond the clear influence of, of your mentors? I think the true um, answer to that is growing up poor in New York City, growing up with a, a single mo- mother, growing up in tenements, literally living in buildings for less than a year because as soon as the rent would go up, we would mm. move out because we just couldn't afford to stay. That actually taught me and gave me firsthand experience of the injustices that existed. And as a child, I was always drawn to comics because I loved the escapism, but I also loved the narratives that were focused around combating injustices. One of my earliest childhood memories was I was possibly like a kindergarten or first grader and my brother was walking us across a vacant lot because there were many in the South Bronx because so many of these buildings were torched down. Your brother Axel? My brother Axel, yeah. yeah you know that I love Axel. that too. And we're taking a show. It was like, yo, Egg, my, my nickname is Eggy. So he's like, I call yeah. Eggy. <laughs> yeah. I told Stretch. Your Eggy. Stretch like, what, what do we call him? So, yo, just call him Eggy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Eggy, we're going to take a shortcut through this lot. And I'm like, but oh, I don't need a shortcut. My hair's already short. That's how young I was. I wasn't even familiar with vernacular. And we're taking this shortcut and we get jumped. We just get jumped by knuckleheads who just want to mess with us for no reason because we got nothing to offer. I wasn't the only one. <laughs> I was, you know, we had nothing to offer. And I recall telling them. <laughs> You're in so much trouble because I'm reading comic books now and I'm learning about my superpowers. I literally said that. And that was my way wow. of saying <laughs> I'm going to combat this injustice, as, some, wow. as weird as that was. You yeah. see what I'm saying? But it was it was kind of like my, my, my existence. You know what I mean? So that, did they stop at that moment look at you? They kind of looked at me and was like, like what? what? <laughs> It was a moment where they kind of said, what did he just say? You know? Hey, Bob, you, you mentioned the Young Lords, and I don't know if you could speak on that briefly because I think a lot of our audience would not know who or what the Young Lords sure. are. Well, the Young Lords actually came from uh, Chicago. Um, there was a young brother named Chacha Jimenez at the time who was incarcerated with Fred Hampton. While they were incarcerated, Fred Hampton schooled him. And yeah. Fred Hampton was a member of the Black Panthers. Fred Hampton, Panthers. original member of the Black Panthers, right? And he was like saying, you need to come out of this institution better than you came in. Mm-hmm. But not only for yourself, but especially for your community. And when he came out, he transformed his gang, the Young Lords, into what would become the Young Lords organization. And he actually inspired a group of college students here in New York City to actually create a New York City chapter. And they took it to a whole other level and they created it as the Young Lords Party. And they rocked the Purple Berets. They opened up abandoned storefronts as um, kitchens for um, breakfast programs. And mind you, this is like before New York City was offering free lunches, free yeah. breakfast. Yeah. That's so like common. But there was an era in New York City where when if you were poor, you just didn't have any food to go to school with, and you didn't have any food when you came home. And the Young Lords stepped in and created these programs that they also didn't just provide food, they provided clothing, they provided uh, programs where they were literally decolonizing minds to help young people and families understand what their rights were. And they were doing this from 1969 into the early 1970s. And they're very, very progressive. They stood for gay rights, they stood for women's rights. They're very, very historically progressive group of Puerto Ricans. I call them the original Avengers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you you mentioned um, your early love affair with comics as a kid, which um, may or may not have gotten you out of getting stomped out. <laughs> what what it was actually th- led to being stomped a couple of times? <laughs> who, who, 
who were some of the characters that you most identified with? I identified in a funny way with Spider-Man because he was he had brown hair like me, so I thought he was Puerto Rican. Everybody that had brown hair when I was growing up, I thought was Puerto Rican. <laughs> you know? And at the time in the seventies, like we had we had like Freddie Prince on TV. And I was like, Oh, Peter Parker gotta be like short for like Pedro Parqueo or something like that. So it was actually Spider-Man, and uh, and I loved um, Batman for his character design and such. But I wasn't too kind of like keen on the, you know, I'm a billionaire, so I'm gonna save the world because that doesn't really happen. <laughs> that doesn't really happen. But what I also liked about Spider-Man that he came from a single parent household. He was raised by his aunt. He grew up in Queens, so he was working class poor. He didn't have the the billions to have all these gadgets or a secret lair, and he literally handmade his own costume and such. So. That was actually one of the characters that I loved the most. And also because of his sarcasm. I was never uh, uh, an athletic cat. I was never a, uh, what's call it, a vertically enhanced individual. <laughs> I was the scrub. And I would always get picked on. And oftentimes I turned to sarcasm to kind of like, you know, get myself out of like situations, you know. Mm. And, and oftentimes it did. Clearly, you know, you're growing up, your brain is wide open on Marvel. You're now working there. That's got to be like a kid who likes basketball, and one day he's a teammate with Michael Jordan. Oh my gosh! Imagínate, that would be that was uh, it was an amazing moment, and it's kind of like Joe Quesada and, and the previous editor in chief, Axel Alonso, were the only Latinos who were actually working at Marvel, and the first uh, like two Latinos back to back they were editor in chief at Marvel. So an idea I came up with about 10 years ago was to actually curate an exhibition, which at that point had never been done. And I just found that like remarkable. Like, why would no one actually curate an exhibition of comic book art? That's crazy. And I curated Joe Quesada's first solo art show, Santarians, The Art of Joe Quesada. And I recall him telling me, I've never had my work in an art show. I've had like maybe one or two pieces, but never a whole exhibition about my actual career. And then a couple of years later, Axel Alonso reached out to me and said, you should do another show. And so I did Marvelous Color, which was a tribute to Marvel's um, superheroes of color. Because of that, I was actually able to bring DMC from Run DMC into the doors at Marvel and able to use that kind of connection to help us start what would become Daryl Makes Comics, the imprint that um, DMC and I started. And that actually led to our actual writing uh, uh, for Marvel. And Daryl loosely came up with an idea of pairing Groot and Thing. And I took that idea and I developed it into a full, full-blown script. And it was an opportunity to kind of like write for Marvel in a way that Marvel inspired me, but also to kind of reflect what New York City really was to me. So when I was writing a story and I got to write with about Groot and the Thing, I was like, well, Thing is probably the most authentic New York City character out there. Like, he's literally L.E.S. But <laughs> the Thing's Lower East Side is really Jack Kirby's Lower East Side, which is like early 1900s, literally. So I'm thinking like, well, if it's now... And he's like, and the thing is like a 30-something-year-old character. That means he grew up in the 80s. So if he grew up in the 80s in the Lower East Side, then he grew up around a lot of Puerto Ricans. He grew up around a lot of black folks. So his connection with the Lower East Side has to reflect that. It can't reflect this kind of like pseudo, kind of like frozen-in-time Jewish experience when that doesn't actually exist anymore. So I I wrote the story, and I actually tapped into the projects on Avenue D. I'm like, they're going to fly in on a ship. It's going to crash land in East River. They're going to walk right through the projects. And people are going to pull out their phones. And, and I was, like, very clear with the arts. We're going to throw in as many brown and black faces in the crowd because that's what the crowd looks like in that part of the mm-hmm. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the coolest thing that came out of the comic book was actually having some Spanish in there and actually getting permission from the editors to have Groot say, Yo soy Groot. <laughs> and that, honestly, that 
was the jump off for La Borinquena because I just thought that was going to be kind of like the first of many things I would do with Marvel. And then the buzz started exploding from that one little story that I wrote for them. I recall going to the comic book shop and my wife was like, let's take a picture with you in your first issue with Marvel. And, you know, I'm like yeah, cheesing with it. And I posted on my social media. And the next thing I know, my cousin in Puerto Rico is like, mira, tu saliste en los periódicos. And I'm like, I, I'm in the papers. What are you talking about? And I Google myself and there I was. My, my selfie was in Primera Hora, one of Puerto Rico's newspapers. And all of a sudden, everyone's proudly talking about this Puerto Rican writer working for Marvel. And all these, like, <laughs> groups start reaching out to me. And wait, were you freelance? I, you I, I was on contract. Hire? No, I was on contract. Oh, I signed a contract official. with them. Okay. Yeah, I was an official writer for okay. them. Okay, okay. Um, but the way that, you know, the way that, the way Marvel works is, like, you, you sign with them, and you kind of, like, have this open contract with them. So you got to still pitch them stuff. Mm. So even though you're in the system, you still have to consistently, constantly pitch and get rejected. You know what I'm saying? So I made, I recall doing one pitch, got rejected, and I was like, carajo, this is going to be <laughs> how it's like. And all this buzz started happening, and one, one institution that reached out to me was the National Puerto Rican Day Parade. And they were like, we want to honor you and give you a sash. And I was like, that's a little premature. I've only written like one story for Marvel, <laughs> you know? Like, you got so many people in the industry. You're so good. You know? I mean, like, like shout out to George Perez, who's like the, one of the first Puerto Ricans in the industry who's created close to 70 characters for Marvel and DC, including Marvel's first Puerto Rican here, White Tiger. So when they hit me up, I said, you know what? Let me get back to you. I got an idea. And I started working out this idea, these sketches, and I came to them with this proposal. And I said, you know what? I want to debut this new comic book that I'm working on called La Borinquena. And then I didn't think that La Borinquena was going to be this big thing. I just thought it was going to be at the parade. It would give me a platform to talk about the, uh, the debt crisis affecting Puerto Rico. And then that was that. But then it exploded. And I've been so busy with La Borinquena, like literally independently producing it and publishing myself, that I've never even pitched or even went back to Marvel with anything. Because the last thing I expected was my own stuff to end up being bigger than anything that I could actually do at Marvel. But, you know, that's the way the universe works. I was never into comics as a kid. I'm, I'm a little bit... Where's the eject button? <laughs> yeah, I, I know you were, you were into comics as a kid, right? Oh, I, I was... I, I just moved recently, but I had a stack of Silver Surfers from the 60s and 70s. Oh, my God. And Daredevils. Those, those are my two favorites. I remember you texted me a photo of you holding, like, a uh, man a thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like an old picture, and you were, like, yeah. studiously yeah. looking at this yeah. comic and such. So so I'm just curious, as, as an outsider, right, I, I read recently, I think I think I was reading about, maybe on, on Pete Rock's Twitter feed, he was talking about um, African-American comic book characters, and I'm not really aware of how much diversity has been in the comic book realm. I think um, of it as a chocolate chip cookie. Is the, is the whole cookie dark brown or do you just see a couple of like little brown specks on it? And just because you see a couple of like, you know, brown specks doesn't mean the entire cookie is going to be like a dark chocolate experience. And that's really the case with diversity. And, 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 and there is backlash also because there are like purists that don't want their characters to intermingle with anyone that isn't, you know, Aryan. And recently, there was an attempt by the previous editor-in-chief to very much diversify the roster. And uh, like Kwame, hip-hop artist and producer Kwame Holland, I like, I like quoting him a lot. It was a comic book industry's attempt to dip in chocolate. And they took a lot of established characters and reintroduced them as characters of color. They did that with Iron Man. They reintroduced her 
as an adolescent black woman. They took um, Captain America and they took Falcon's costume off and made him Captain America. The publishing side of Marvel, their sales started to decline. Even though they're still leading, they weren't leading as well as they were probably the year before, you know, previous, the, the previous year. So there has been a diversity, but just, there just isn't enough. You have a character like, like mine and there have been maybe a couple of like Latino characters, but none of them have ever been unapologetically patriotic. You know, they kind of like the first Marvel superhero that's Puerto Ricans, White Tiger, but he was actually like steeped in Eastern mythology. It was nothing Puerto Rican about the character except for his like horrendous like Spanglish. You read the old comic books, it was like, hey, yo, mio, like really like poorly like written in terms of the Spanish, but there it was. That That is the history of that. We're going to get into your character, La Borinquena, but first let's talk about La Borinquena, the Puerto Rican national anthem. You guys aren't going to sing along? I don't like this version. There are actually two different versions of La Borinquena, and this is actually the, the second version that was created. The original version was actually written by Lola Rodriguez de Tio, a woman, and the second version was written, was written by a Spaniard that was commissioned to rewrite Oh, so the different lyrics. Version. Completely, Completely wow. different and, and lyrics. And what's the consensus? Which one is the one that, that gets Well, there's gets a history to sung. that. Like, like 70 years ago, literally to this year, there was the U.S. gag law was introduced to Puerto Rico, which literally outlawed the Puerto Rican flag. And prior to that, the Puerto Rican flag was actually created in New York City in 1895 by a group of Puerto Ricans living here in Chelsea in exile. So they got together and with a bunch of other... in solidarity with Cubans. That's exactly. They were meeting with Cubans who were also living here in exile. That's why the two bumps. flags... And that's why the two flags are so similar. It's actually um, the same poet, Lola Rodriguez de Tio, that wrote the original lyrics to La Borinquena, also wrote a poem um, saying that Cuba y Puerto Rico son dos, ala, dos alas. alas del mismo pájaro, paloma, right? Cuba and Puerto Rico are two wings of the same bird. And the original anthem of the of the of Puerto Rico had lyrics that were very revolutionary. They were very much about liberty. They were very much about fighting for what's yours. And then this new anthem is introduced, which is pretty much saying, wow, Christopher Columbus is so awesome for discovering <laughs> us. And look how beautiful these beaches are. <laughs> it was a completely different song. And what happened is we're indoctrinated with this song. I remember as a child in New York City, that was one of the songs. It was... The national anthem, lift every voice and sing, and uh, La Borinquena, that second version. And I thought that was the only version. And when I learned this history, I was like, oh, my gosh, that is crazy. There's a really great singer, his name is Danny Rivera. He actually sang uh, a different version of La Borinquena, and he sings the, the original version, which is, Despierta, Borinqueño, que han dado la señal. Despierta de ese sueño, que es hora de luchar. A este llamar patriótico, no arde tu corazón. Ven, no serás simpático. El ruido del cañón, nosotros queremos la libertad. Nuestro machete nos la dará. Vámonos, borinqueño, vámonos ya. Que nos espera ansiosa, ansiosa la libertad. La libertad, la libertad. Now, you know, refrain from the high note at the end because I don't want to crack. <laughs> Uh, 
Bob, but that you, would be you got your homework cut out for you. <laughs> Seriously, I want I want to hear you do that <laughs> by this time next year. I'll do the hip hop okay. version of that. <laughs> <laughs> so Puerto Rico's current flag is dark blue, but the original flag is light blue. Do you see? Young, active people like donning the original Puerto Rican flag with the oh, light yeah. blue. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's also a whole another flag that represents Puerto Rico. El Grito de Lares. So there's right? a third flag. Well, there's a flag predates right, the, of the, the, sure. the light blue one, which was uh, in solidarity with La República de, de Dominicana, mm-hmm. and it looks like the Dominican flag. But basically, there was a rebellion in the town of Lares, uh, September 23rd, uh, 1868. And they created a flag to commemorate the, at that point, we weren't colonized by the United States. We were a colony of, of, of Spain. And I actually incorporate a lot of that into the comic I wrote because the character's costume actually comes from the original Lattice flag itself. Because I wanted to kind of figure out how to tie in real history to connect that to a new generation because that history has been lost. It's complete. And if there's no context to kind of revisit that history, nobody will have any interest to even discuss that history. And, and, and that's really why a lot of the, the work I do goes into the, the books. And it's really kind of like it's a lot of visual representation of historical moments and a narrative that it has kind of like a contemporary feel and swing to it by bringing in a younger character who's literally like more than half my, my age. You know, Marisol Rios de la Luz, my character... Is a, great, is a t- great choice on the stereotypical, super long ass name <laughs> of Boricua people. Like I saw that, I was like, "Oh, he nailed it!" <laughs> I got mad cousins. Like <laughs> and I also like, but even her name, I, I intentionally like selected it because it, it translates in, in, into like sea and sun, rivers of light. It's kind of crazy to talk about it, but the first book came out in December of 2016. That's when the first book comes out. Hurricane Maria happens nine months later, right? But the first book ends with her just getting her powers and then the island is hit with a massive tropical storm that leads her in a blackout. And she flies across the island to help people in Aguadilla when the storm is first hitting. And as she's helping them by actually creating, you know, a dam from some of the fallen trees, they see her in her red, white, and blue and automatically start singing the national anthems. But they're singing both national anthems to her. So it's kind of like this fusion of both. And they are actually the ones that name her La Borinquena because she just calls herself Marisol. Mm. But when they see her, they go, oh my, La Borinquena, es La Borinquena. All the comic books, 100% of the comic books I've ever, I've ever read in my life feature a Latina superhero. I've only read one. And that's... <laughs> That's La Borinquena number two. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed it. Oh, thank yeah, you, bro. Yeah. Um, what, what I found intriguing about it was, was how she's not fighting a, a, a villain, right? She's dealing, she, she's focusing her energies on, on actual real world issues like climate change and gentrification and whatnot. I thought that was really intriguing and, um, and different from, I suspect, most well, I, I, Most I, I'm a dude. We're all dudes here. And when I was writing this, I wanted, I didn't want to fall into the traps of writing from a position of patriarchy because it's super easy and comfortable to do that. And I thought to myself, I've been mentored by a lot of incredibly strong women. My mother, my cousin Lillian, Dr. Marta Moreno Vega, Iris Morales. And I thought to myself, they've done wonders to kind of undo this patriarchy that I've been raised in and, give it, and infuse me with a 
with a sense of matriarchy. So I thought to myself, how could I write this book and undo the patriarchy that's synonymous with comic book storytelling or storytelling in general? For the most part, comic book storytelling is like almost like the complete wish fulfillment, the complete personification of male fantasy. Incredible, super muscular bodies, punching out bad guys, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I thought to myself, of the women that I was um, raised and mentored by, there was never a, a clear and present threat. There was never a bogey. There was never that villain. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to create a character, then I'm not going to follow that formula that, that predated this as well. And also, most characters in comics are always defined by their rogues gallery. And I thought to myself, she's not going to be defined by her villain. She's going to be defined by her people. She's going to be defined by her heritage, by her culture. That's intentionally why, why I wrote it that way. And then a lot of times you have so many tropes that are kind of like um, persistent and prevalent in, 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 in storytelling, like these kind of corporate entities or these, these big governments and, all, and, and such like that. But when you're talking about Puerto Rico, that's not a trope. That's a reality. So, Eggy, out of all this came your idea to make a comics anthology called Reconstruction. The full name is Reconstruction, Reminiscing and Rebuilding Puerto Rico. What does reminiscing mean to you? Why did you use that word? Because it's important to know where you come from, to know where you need to go. It's important to acknowledge the history, whether you agree with it or not, whether it upsets you or not, whether it inspires you or not, to kind of like take that in and, and move from there so that you don't make mistakes again. And it also is to remind people that there is a history, a very rich and diverse history infused with, with literature, infused with struggle, infused with music, infused with arts, infused with resilience. And that's why the, the alliteration exists in the titling. And the concept of the book came to me literally two weeks after Hurricane Maria when I was at the New York Comic Con, already overwhelmed with the majority of people who were coming to my table crying, asking me about my family because they had not heard from their family. And then the co-publisher of DZ Comics approaches me because his fiance is a fan of my work and he's online. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, snap, this is one of the big two publishers right now physically coming to me. Yeah. And he's looking through my book and he's telling me, wow, this looks really beautiful, really, really great. And I respond by saying, what are we going to do for Puerto Rico? And out of that came this conversation that he and I continued to have through the course of the rest of that week and an agreement that led me to using every any character I wanted, any of their talent that I wanted nice. to produce this anthology so that 100% of the proceeds could go back to Puerto Rico. And my wife, Kyung, came up with the idea of developing a grants program. So she and my friend Nicole Rodriguez came together and created this program where we invited grassroots organizations on the island to apply. And then we're going to literally funnel small grants. And we'll be in, in Puerto Rico uh, this September to personally award these grants from the money that we've raised um, from the sales of reconstruction. And it's not just to kind of like give them their money and then there's that. It's just kind of like to use the buzz and exposure that I'm getting through my work to raise awareness to the work that these institutions are doing so that people can see that Puerto Ricanos are lifting themselves up, are working one alongside each other to truly reconstruct the island. <sighs> my dude. I'm getting emotional here. Um, where do you see your comic books fitting in, in terms of the, the chamber of Puerto Rican ac activism, which you are, you are part of a long legacy of at this point. I see this, honestly, as an evolution of the work that the Young Lords Party did in the in the 60s and 70s. I see this as an evolution of the work that Don Pedro Albizio Campos did in Puerto Rico. I see this as an evolution of the the threads that... that um, 
Mariana Brasetti used to create the first flag of El Grito de Lares. You know, I see it as that. And just like, I just feel that given the, given the world that we live in now, I think that in order to truly create a, a, a sustainable revolution, you need to invoke an evolution. And that's where the comic book comes in, you know. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's time for the impression session. Let's go for a quick break. Why don't you grab some water and we'll come right back. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Babbel, a language program that quickly teaches real-life conversations in a new language. Choose from Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Babbel's 10 to 15 minute lessons use interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology to get you speaking your new language correctly and confidently. Try Babbel for free by downloading the app or going to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. I'm Maria Hinojosa. This week on Latino USA, Joel Martinez, a.k.a. The Kid Mero, shares how he roasts America one Trump joke at a time. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. That means one thing. It's time for the impression session. Word up. So we basically going to play you a track each and you just respond to it however you wish. Cool? Yes, sir. All right. Shut you. You go up front. No way to rock me. No way to stop me. This seems quite shocking to those that mock me. Mock me. And that's not all. MCs have to go. But pray and pray for my downfall. But I'm not running. I'm just stunning. So Run DMC's, uh, what, Live from Hollis, I think that's what that joint was called. Um, the, the funny thing about that song was being on the road with D for the last couple of years when we were um, touring comic cons across the U.S. promoting um, our graphic novel series, Daryl Makes Comics. It's literally kind of like having a, a constant behind the scenes of my childhood. Like there was this one cool moment. There was a DJ at an event and they start playing like uh, Public Enemy, uh, Rebel Without a Pause. And the two of us are like, yes, the rhythm, the rhythm. And I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like rapping along with D. Right, right. Like just some regular dude, you know? <laughs> and so he told and so one of the things I think about that song when I hear it is how he tells me that they recreated the live scene, you know, because they were such students of of, of oh, hip hop. Such students of the live well, hip hop was never vinyl. Hip hop was mm-hmm. never recorded. So they they literally recreated that. And and I remember thinking that that actually was a live song. And I like, thought it was live when I first heard it. Too. Yeah, and he was like, they, "Oh, you're so silly." <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. What's the official title of that song, Shetch? It's "Together Forever." Crush Groove One? number f- in parentheses. three or four. Yeah, in parentheses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a lot of crush grooves that yeah. evidently came before this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I I was asked to uh, to interview DMC in front of a live audience uh, at for Seoul in Dubai. So uh, uh, DXB in Dubai, and literally, like I asked him one question, and, and then he, he just he went for yeah. an hour and told the most That's compelling, deep. entertaining, and just you know 
really B-side stories about about the evolution of Run DMC that I was that I was I had never heard before. I would have my jaw I need, open. I mean, look, D, you're doing comic books, but I need the autobiography. <laughs> he's he's amazing. We me and me and my, my wife Kim always call it the he, he the greatest hits because we go we went on tour with him, so we yeah. heard a lot of his like stories. But he really truly is such an incredibly humble, down to earth dude, and an incredibly surreal like experience. It's a trip. It's a trip. I mean, it is. I mean, listen, I, 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 I used I, to wear a Run DMC Adidas gear. In high school, that's how ter- <laughs> surreal that is. Man. I mean, Run DMC, that's that's the pinnacle for me in terms of groups. It, it, that, that's it. Group. Yeah. It's beautiful to see D in such a good space right now. It really is. What's, what's amazing it. about seeing D right now is hearing D right now because his voice is back. And I've been working with D for the last five years when his voice was just starting to come back. And to see how in the five, and I literally mean his voice for the listeners who don't understand, DMC literally lost his voice for a while. And there was an, an entire Run DMC album that was created where he did not perform once because he did not have the voice to perform it. And Run um, was uh, doing all these duets with everyone from Kid Rock to anyone else on this album. And D was in the album as samples, you know. So to hear D's voice actually come back yeah. as the it's DMC that we grew up, it's, yeah. it's just powerful yeah, and beautiful, yeah. All right, we're going to get to the next track. Cuando la tiranía es ley, la revolución es orden. Because when tyranny is law, revolution is order. Pedro Albizu Campos, um, el now, maestro. That's a Tony Touch song off his album, Peacemaker. Toca. You gave that speech to Tony to use for the album. Tony and I have a beautiful history, too. I recall... Uh, DJ Tony living. Touch. Tony Toca, And we, he was still living in, um, um, in Bushwick at the time. And that's actually a song that was like very close to me because I literally saw the song literally being created in front of my eyes. And I recall at some point, one of the items that I got from Agueva and I was uh, the biography of Alviso Campos. And I, re- I recall um, this was actually around the time where Bob was uh, coaching uh, basketball at El Puente. And I handed over to you like one of my only, my only copy of Alviso's um, biography. And, I, and you were like, what's, hi, why are you giving this to me? I was like, because I, I want you to read this. I think it's important. I'm like, what's the whole point of me having this if I can't share this and so that you can share this? And I knew you had a, better, a much larger platform than I did. Yeah, well, when you're growing up, we had a post of Pedro Abizu Campos in our living room. And I had no idea of the significance of his work, both as, as a humanitarian as well as a, a leader for the independence and sovereignty of Puerto Rico. Um, when you were... When you gave me that book, you told me something very profound. And you said knowledge kept. I forgot what you knowledge said. Knowledge kept is knowledge lost. Knowledge kept is knowledge lost. Yeah. And you handed me the book. And, and from there, that book has stayed with me. I probably should give it to somebody. 
<laughs> at some point. Not it's kept, Bob. Yeah, I know. Because I've read it and, you know, it's, uh, but thank you for that. And thank right. you for giving Tony Touch when he was making his Tommy Boy album, you know, the Pedro Bizzo, uh speech. You have been a conduit of knowledge and, and pride and, and cultural affinity for, you know, beyond Puerto Ricans. Now Stretch has read this book, La, La Borinquena. Like, Stretch knows about Puerto Rican history now. This is incredible, you know. He and I went to the island for the first time together oh, wow. in December. Yeah, three months after Hurricane Maria. Wow. And we DJed together in, uh, in Biao San Juan. Cats were coming up to us. Like, yo, we needed this. We needed yeah. music. We needed to escape the island. You brought us back to New York. Yeah. It was like this surreal bond going on that night that music was the platform for. Um, so anyway, so thank you for all that you've thank done. You. Eggy, I love you. Thank yo you, te tanto. Igualmente. And uh, you've been a real friend, bro. Gracias. Well, that's our show. This podcast was produced by Michelle Lanz, edited by Jordana Hochman and Nigeri Eaton. And our executive producer is Abby O'Neill. If you like the show, you can hear more at npr.org. And bonus video content on Spotify on Fridays. Thanks to Spotify for their support. Please go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. That's how we know you're listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Stretch and Bob or Instagram at Stretch and Bobito. Hasta la próxima. Hey, Stretch, that was good. 